The new year is about hope. January is the special time of year when we're allowed to press the reset button and start over. I know that 2020 wasn't what everyone was expecting, but now we can all choose to make 2021 a year of endless possibilities. I'd like to invite you to join me for my New Year New Habits five-day program starting January 20th. To register, just go to jshettygenius.com forward slash 2021. Starting January 20th, I'll be meeting with you virtually for five consecutive days to give you the tools you need to create the year you need. Together, we'll meditate and set our intentions for 2021 we want to have. Five days, five workshops, one fresh start. Let's say yes to starting 2021 with an open heart and open mind. It all starts with you. Go to jshettygenius.com forward slash 2021 to register today. Thank you and get excited for January 20th. I really want you in 2021 to train your mind for peace and purpose every day. The world around us is not always going to be peaceful. People are not going to recognize our purpose. And the best way I know you can do this is by grabbing a copy of Think Like a Monk, my first ever book. This book will guide you through all of the skills and techniques needed to actually discover yourself, focus on your purpose, and build incredible relationships in your life. If you want to grab a copy or a copy for a friend because you already have one, head over to thinklikeamonkbook.com. Thank you so much, and I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to On Purpose. I'm so glad you come back every single week to listen, learn, and grow. And I'm so excited to be talking to you today. I can't believe it. My new book, Eight Rules of Love, is out and I cannot wait to share it with you. I am so, so excited for you to read this book, for you to listen to this book. I read the audiobook. If you haven't got it already, make sure you go to eightrulesoflove.com. It's dedicated to anyone who's trying to find, keep, or let go of love. So if you've got friends that are dating, broken up, or struggling with love, make sure you grab this book. And I'd love to invite you to come and see me for my global tour, Love Rules. Go to jshedditour.com to learn more information about tickets, VIP experiences, and more. I can't wait to see you this year. And today I'm super excited to be interviewing a guest that I actually had on Instagram Live a few months ago. And we weren't able to dive in even as deep as I wanted to in that Instagram Live, which was amazing. So I thought, why not bring him onto the podcast where I can really quiz him on the things that I'm interested about, the things that I know, insights that will really help you, and of course, get to know each other better. So today's guest is none other than Dr. Mark Hyman. He's a practicing family physician and an internationally recognized leader, speaker, educator, and advocate in the field of functional medicine. He's the founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center, the head of strategy and innovation of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, a 13-time New York Times best-selling author and board <laughs> president for clinical affairs for the Institute for Functional Medicine. Now, he's the host of one of the leading health podcasts, The Doctor's Pharmacy. Highly recommend listening to it and checking it out. Dr. Hyman is a regular medical contributor to several TV shows and networks, including CBS, This Morning, Today, Good Morning America, The View, and CNN. He's also an advisor and guest co-host on The Dr. Oz Show. This is an episode I'm so excited about where we will dive deep into how to save our health, our economy, our communities, and our planet one bite at a time with a discussion about his latest book, Food Fix. Welcome to the show, Mark Hyman. Thank you so much. That was so sweet. Thank you, Jay. So fun to be with you. Ah, it's so fun to be with you. I loved our Instagram live. We were just sharing. We, we did that just before lockdown and the pandemic and, and everything kind of shifted. And I'm remembering back to doing it with you. And I, I loved it so much. And I'm so glad we're actually getting to spend this quality time together now and really dive into this great book you've written. Thank you. Thank you. It, it, was, a, it was really the culmination of life's work to connect the dots between everything we love and care about and how they're connected in ways that we don't imagine, but that we actually solve the problem of food. We solve the problems of chronic disease, of the stress in our economy, 
of the disintegration of our communities, of racism, of environmental destruction, climate change, national security, kids' education. I mean, all of it's connected to food. And, and it's really such a joy to be able to share how those things are connected and actually what we can do about it. Because it's not called food apocalypse, it's called <laughs> food fix. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I can't wait to dive into all areas of that with you because I think we don't realize how powerful and influential food is, not just in our bodies, not just in our minds, but in the world. Mm. And I know that inside this book, you've gone into so many studies and so much research to really show the impact of food in the world. But I actually want to start somewhat a bit more personal with you because I uh, was discovering some fascinating things about you. And this was one that I loved, uh, that I feel there's no better way to start this interview than letting our audience know that you were a yoga teacher before you were a doctor. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That fascinated me. When I, was like, I was like, wow, that's cool. Like, I, yeah, I, actually, I, I, made, I majored in Buddhism and Asian studies and Asian religions uh, in college. And um, I wasn't going to be a doctor. I was going to be a monk. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually decided, well, you know, I'm not sure I want to be a monk. Maybe I'll just try to be a doctor and be a service in that way. And it was really driven out of the, the notion of compassion and service that was so embedded in Buddhism. And I uh, learned about it in college. So, yeah, and I, I then became a yoga teacher and uh, decided to become a doctor after that. So it was an afterthought, but I'm still working at it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, when we get onto that, it means you're thinking like a monk for sure. So I, I love that. But um, tell me a bit more about that compassion piece that you were sharing there, because I think it's really interesting that, you know, people get involved in medicine for so many reasons. People get involved in uh, being authors for so many reasons, but it sounds like your, your kind of foundation was wanting to help people, wanting to make a difference. Yeah. That was the I mean, I think, you know, when I really studied Buddhism, I was you know, obviously looking for answers as a young man of 18, 19 years old, and what's the truth and what's the meaning of life. And in, in it, I realized it was a description of how to heal suffering. And, and the focus of Buddhism isn't a religion. It's a, it's a methodology for healing and relieving suffering and understanding the, the way our minds work that cause us to suffer so much. And, and I began to really focus on this notion of how we don't have to suffer and why we suffer. And, and, it, and it was really that that led me to understanding that I could actually be in that space of service and working on healing through not just, you know, being a monk, <laughs> but actually being a doctor and, and actually helping patients and people understand how to heal chronic disease, which is what I do. And so I, I think, you know, there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much burden that everybody suffers from both psychologically, physically, and so many different ways. And I was really drawn to doing something to help deal with that. And, and that's really what led me to becoming a doctor. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I, th I think it's a, it's a really unique way of looking at it because I think for so many of us, sometimes we can be dealing with physical or emotional pain or issues for such a long time before we even think that there's something we need to do about it. Yeah. Sometimes people are living with chronic issues for such a long time and we, we don't really listen or hear from the body or, or from the mind what we need to change. So when you look at it that way, that you can change what suffering you choose and what yeah. you allow in, it's, it's huge. Tell me uh, one more thing. On, oh, sorry, go on. You were going to say something. No, I'm going to say, you know, like, what's your mission in life? You know, it's like, it's really to end needless suffering. There's some suffering you can't avoid, but... <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a lot of needless suffering. And, and, and the place where I, I feel most effective is really helping people understand that, that they, they can heal from chronic disease using a new strategy, which is functional medicine. It's really an approach of using food as medicine, but it's understanding the root causes. It's understanding the body as a system. It's really helping restore and regenerate health as opposed to treat disease. And, and, and people suffer unnecessarily. And I think this, this goal of, of, for my life has really been to sort of bring this way of thinking and, and helping people into, into a broader perspective. And that's really what I do at Cleveland Clinic is we're publishing research on this. It's really gratifying to see that actually that it's catching on, that people now understand what this is, that they understand that, that our current medical paradigm isn't really solving a lot of their problems. And, you know, I, I got there because I was sick. I got very, very ill when I was young from chronic fatigue, living in China, got mercury poisoning and ended up having just, you know, my body just collapsed. And I had to literally reverse engineer my way to health using principles of functional medicine of how to restore my health. 
And, and I realized it was applicable to so many patients, you know, people with autoimmune diseases and digestive disorders and mood disorders and Alzheimer's and autism and so, diabetes and metabolic issues, all the things that the people suffer from that we don't really deal well with traditional medicine is what I really focused on. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And uh, I love how so much of the good we do always comes from some sort of pain in our own life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's you know it's amazing that you've been able to go and take it so far and not just take it far but you're really challenging the status quo let's start there actually within food fix uh you know i doubt people take the time to actually think that the food industry has an agenda of their own but can mm. you share some ways in which the industry is strategic and how it advances its own goals and missions i feel like most of us oh, don't boy. Expect it. oh boy that's a can of worms so uh there are uh a lot of unintended consequences that have led to our current food system that were born out of good intentions, right? We wanted to feed the world. We wanted to have the ability to grow lots of food for a lot of people and provide a lot of calories at scale and modernize agriculture. And, and that was happening in the 50s and 60s, which led to this commercialization of, of industrial agriculture, which led to enormous amounts of, of starchy industrial food being produced. Right. So it was, it was just, we were all enamored with, you know, astronaut food and processed food and tang instead of orange juice. And unfortunately, that's led to a method of growing food that's produced the worst food on the planet. It's mostly ultra processed food, which is made from soy, corn and wheat and different extruded colors, sizes, shapes and forms. It's all deadly, about 60 percent of our calories. And it's also led to the destruction of the environment through destruction of the soil and biodiversity of plants and animals and insects, and also stresses on our water and, and increasing climate change and all the, so the pollution from the incredible amount of pesticides and herbicides. And we use 6 billion pounds around the world of glyphosate, which is pretty toxic. And we use you know 400 billion pounds of nitrogen fertilizer, which has all kinds of devastating consequences. So the way we're growing the food and the food that we're growing is devastating our health and devastating planetary health. And, and, and so, the problem is that the food industry is the biggest industry on the planet. It's 15 billion, sorry, trillion with a T dollar industry uh, that is now trying to maintain the status quo, unfortunately, which is not a good one. So it wasn't like they said, oh, we're going to make people sick and fat and we're going to destroy the environment. They, they just didn't know, but now they know. And so there's a very concerted effort to um, control our food policy, which is, you know, what, as a doctor, why would I be caring about politics and food policy? But it occurred to me as I'm sitting in my office seeing patients one-on-one -on -one, that I can't cure diabetes in my office. It's cured in the kitchen, in the grocery store, on the farm. And, and I need to sort of look upstream and look at the root causes. And they began to say, well, what's causing the food that they're eating that's making them sick? Well, it's the, it's the food system. What's causes the food system? It's our food policies. And why do we have the food policies we have? Because it's a food lobby that drives that. And so they drive a lot of the status quo. And that and they do it in in in, in and they do it in, in government policy. And we spend half a billion dollars just on the farm bill uh, in one year, in nineteen, I think in two thousand and five, the uh, the uh, GMO labeling law was defeated uh, because the food industry collectively spent one hundred ninety two million dollars on one bill in lobby. Uh, and they do this uh, by driving our dietary guidelines policy, our agricultural policies that promote the growth of these um, raw materials or commodities for ultra-processed food. They do it through controlling what we can say on food labels. Uh, they control the, the restrictions on marketing so we can't actually limit marketing for junk food. Uh, and across the whole you know, multiple 10 agencies of the government, there's, there's so many policies that are influencing our food system that are often at odds with each other, contradictory, but they're in the interest of the food industry. So, so that's happening. And then they're also co-opting science. So the National Institute of Health spends a billion dollars on research for nutrition. The food industry spends 12 billion. Most of it's propaganda. Like, you know, if the Dairy Council says milk is nature's perfect food, well, all the studies show that. Or Coca-Cola finds that, you know, when they fund a study that obesity has nothing to do with soda. You know, so it doesn't make sense. They also fund... Uh, uh, groups that are front groups, like the American Council on Science and Health, which sounds like a great noble cause with crop life or, you know, uh, the, the uh, group for sustainable agriculture. And they're all front groups for the food industry to propagate their agenda and create misinformation. Uh, and then there's, they co-op pub, uh, public health groups, like the American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, Academy of Nutrition Dietetics. 40% of their budget is from the food industry. So they're, they're, they're not giving independent advice. And then they, they co-op uh, 
social groups like the NAACP and Hispanic Federation and groups that are doing you know good in the world. They fund them. For, for example, I, I was um, I was uh, showing a movie as, that I was in a, a number of years called Fed Up, which is about childhood obesity and the the problems we have with the food industry and sugar and starch. And I went down there and I met with the the head of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is Martin Luther King's church. Met with his daughter, Bernice King, and they were very excited to get behind this and, and have a screening at the King Center in Atlanta. And I was excited about this. And a few days later, I got a call and said, we can't have this showing at the King Center. I'm like, why? So, well, Coca-Cola funds the food industry, uh, funds the King Center. So it's pretty frightening when you see all these different strategies to target certain groups, to put out wrong science, to support um, misinformation through these front groups, through influencing public health groups, through controlling policy. And, and it's, it's, it's a really devastating effect, which has led to the fact that six out of 10 Americans have a chronic disease, that 75% of us are overweight, that 42% are obese, that 88% are metabolically unhealthy. I mean, just take that in for a minute. 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. <laughs> that means 88% are not. And, and these people are at more risk for COVID-19 and other, other chronic diseases. So we really had this, this crisis moment here. And, and I think we need to understand how all these things are related. And then we need to design a strategy to, to both from a grassroots level, from a business innovation level, from philanthropy, and from clearly policy to change what's happening. Wow. I mean, that, that is uh, one <laughs> news update in, in, a, in a great way. I was with you the whole time. You know, when, when I hear that, and I think about my community, my audience listening or watching or, or anyone consuming this right now, it's like it can feel very overwhelming, overwhelming to yeah. an individual, for the individual that yes. doesn't have the feeling of just like, there's, there's two things that come to mind. One is like, do these people realize that they're actually destroying people's lives? Because, you know, it almost... At the end of the day, it's like you said, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's not like it started that way. But now mm -hmm. that people are aware and we continue to fund it in that direction, it may leave people feeling quite helpless. Where is a great place for people to get started? Of course, this book for people to get educated, because I feel like the biggest challenge in making choices when you're like, oh, my God, I can't trust the labels. I can't right. trust uh, the, the ingredients on the back. Where do people trust where do they find trust is really yeah well you know i spent a lot of time when i wrote the book food fix to dive into practical solutions both for individuals yeah. for businesses policies and i and i created a food fix action guide it's free they can go to foodfixbook.com and download it essentially it gives you 20 of the top things you can do as citizens and individuals to have an impact to yeah. change change your health and change society and change planetary health and drive policy and drive businesses. And it works. When we, when we change what we want to do and we vote with our wallet and we vote with our voice, we vote with our fork and we vote with our vote, we see massive change. I mean, General Mills and Danone, which are two big food companies, are now funding farmers to convert their lands to regenerative agriculture. So they're literally stepping up and doing what the government isn't doing and funding farmers to transform agriculture to produce nutrient-dense food in a way that restores the soil, restores the plant nutrition, and restores human health. That, that's groundbreaking. And it's because we, we can make those choices. So I talk about how do you become a regenitarian? How do you regenerate your own health? And how do you regenerate planetary health and our social communities and their health? And, and it's, it's pretty simple, right? It's eating real food. It's not buying into the industrial food that we're all eating, which is hard to do for some people. But I get real clear resources on what to look for, where to buy things, where to buy things that are not necessarily expensive because people think it's expensive to do this, but it actually can be done really at scale in a way that isn't going to break the bank. Uh, you have to become a smart consumer. You have to read food labels. You have to seek out different sources of food, whether it's community-supported agriculture or farmer's markets or, or online retailers that sell direct-to-consumer, like Thrive Market or Mariposa Ranch, which actually sell regeneratively raised uh, beef and other animal foods that are really healthy for you. And, and there's things you can do if you if you get inspired in your own community. You can be an agent of change, right? Maybe you want to get your local government to start a compost ordinance. So you'll compost your food because food waste is a huge problem. Like 40% of our food is wasted and it's one of the biggest drivers of climate change. It's bigger, it's a bigger contributor of methane than cows. 
<laughs> and it's all your vegetables you're throwing in the in the compost. That, I mean, in the in the in the landfill, and you can you can actually um, start to understand how to how to do these things for yourself. You maybe have a compost pile in your in your group. If you want to become an active activist, you can turn up the heat on your politicians and and food companies by finding organizations that are doing it and supporting them, or uh, lobbying your representatives. I mean, you can actually have an impact locally. Uh, and you can decide maybe you want to work in your school and help the school lunch and nutrition be better. And people have done that. And so in the book is just full of examples of actually how to take control of your own health and your own life and your own community. And, and it's working. I mean, it's why we're seeing the changes we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for creating that action guide, everyone. That's foodfixbook.com if you want to go and grab that, because uh, I think that's what people are looking for. I really believe that People are looking for action guides because that's where they know they need to start. And one of the things I'm fascinated by when I was looking at the book and I've been looking at your work, you talk about how I think it's like the average child between something like two and 13 or 14, you say, like sees on average, like 10 to 11 junk food ads per day. On Oh, TV. it's terrible. I mean, the average kid sees probably 10,000 ads a year. Yeah. Uh, and that's television. Now we're seeing stealth advertising. So this, a lot of these studies were done on food marketing to kids. It was, there's about $17 billion spent in 2004 when it was tracked on junk food advertising to kids. And the worse the food, the, the more the ads and the, the worse the ads were. So, and, and, and now Facebook, for example, last year had, you know, 500 billion ads for junk food on Facebook, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just unbelievable how much, and there's stealth uh, games for kids like advert games where they're literally embedded prop propaganda for food companies. So little McDonald's, go to the McDonald's store and go to, you know, get your Burger King, whatever it's, it's, it's terrifying. So we see the, the biggest impact actually is this changes in food marketing. And in this country, there's the first amendment. You can't restrict people's right first, you know, right, right to, to free speech. And it's, it, you know, but I don't think there's any law that prohibits us from protecting our children from these kinds of messages because they can't tell the difference between uh, reality and an ad until they're about eight or nine years old. And they're targeting these kids. Uh, and in Chile, when they actually repealed the ability or, or removed the ability for these companies to market between 6 a.m. and like, I think 10 p.m., the, there was dramatic reduction in the use of these foods and dramatic reductions in obesity. But th this country doesn't want to do that because it's, it's, it's such a big moneymaker for these companies. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really alarming because ultimately the people making the decisions are obviously aware that the food's not healthy for people and it's not going to benefit their body or their mind, but they still continue to invest in you know, creating challenges for kids. And, and you know, I always, whenever I, I, I get asked randomly to invest or be a spokesperson for different brands or whatever it may be, and uh, whenever it's something that's aimed at young people, I'm always just like, well, would you let, how old your, I always ask yeah, them, you, how, old, <laughs> how old your son or daughter? And they tell me their age. And I'll be like, would you recommend them to use this product? And the amount of times I've heard people say, no, I wouldn't. But I'm like, but you're selling this. Like, you know, and, and, it, and yeah. it, 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 I'm just so confused by that. Do you think that's the level at which we have to change it? Like it needs to change on the level where people go, my profitability is not as important as people's children. Like, is, Yeah, I think that's changing. You know, I was really excited to hear, you know, there's this group called the Business Roundtable, which is all the top businesses in America. They get together the CEOs. And in the last meeting, they, they made a stand. They said, we have to, look not only at shareholder value, but stakeholder value. Meaning, what is the impact of our company on our customers, on the workers, you know, on the environment? You know, who are the stakeholders in the products we're creating? And it's not just about profit and shareholder value, which I thought was a big step forward. So I think we're seeing more movements towards conscious capitalism, but there's definitely entrenched companies that just don't want to change. And they're not, they're not going to do it voluntarily. So there has to be sort of a parallel system that grows up. That, that shows that this can happen. And I, I think we're doing it. It's, and I want it to happen faster, <laughs> but yeah. I, I, think it's, I think it's happening. Yeah, and how much of it is also, and, and I know you, you know the answer to this, but it's how much of it also is, is our addiction and habits because of the way those products have been created. So we also find it hard to let go of them. So I'll give you a personal example. You know, I grew up eating four sugar products a day uh, when I was young. 
And so, sorry, four chocolate products a day. Sorry, not four, ah. four chocolate products a day. And so I would eat uh, a chocolate biscuit, a chocolate bar, a chocolate ice cream and a chocolate yogurt nearly every wow. day of my life. And I was overweight as a child. Uh, I, I struggled with it, whether it was bullying or whether it was just feeling unhealthy. And as I grew older, I started to realize that I was addicted to sugar, especially in chocolate. And I got so used to having it. And it took me to, who I've talked to you about before, meeting my wife, who was mm -hmm. able to find me alternatives. Because that's what I said to my wife. I was like, I need an alternative if I'm going to have to shake this habit. Yeah. And so... I ended up finding things sweetened with monk fruit and uh, yeah. and other things, which have been amazing. But That's good for but, you, monk fruit, right? <laughs> it, I know. How, how ironic. I do not own the brand or have any affiliation with it whatsoever. <laughs> but, but, but the intriguing thing to me about that is that there are alternatives that exist. But, but I want to share this for the audience. It's like I get what it feels like to be addicted to a, a food that may not yeah. be good. But tell us about how much we're addicted to these foods. Yeah, I mean, this is a real problem, Jay, and I think most people don't realize it. And, and they internalize um, the feelings they have about what they eat and blame themselves. So, oh, why can't I stop eating this? Oh, I'm gaining weight and I just can't stop myself. And they, they think it's their fault that they're overweight or that they're sick. And that is just a bunch of nonsense and scientific nonsense. Because when you look at the science of of these foods, these ultra processed pulverized foods that are high in starch and sugar. They're really designed to hijack our brain chemistry, our hormones and our metabolism in a very specific way. And, and, and the, um, these companies have organizations called taste institutes where they hire craving experts in the, the science of craving and they, they design their products in a specific way to create the bliss point of the food. What is that perfect crunch, taste, sugar, whatever it is, salt, that's going to make you go boom and have this pleasure sensation. And it's about dopamine. It's like heroin or cocaine. And it works in the same area of the brain. And, and it's not just a theory. They know this. Uh, of course, they deny it. Although one of, one of the top executives from a, one of the big soda companies said to me, Mark, you want to come to our lab and See, see what we've done. We've actually been able to extract the taste buds from humans and we grow them in a culture in the lab and then we can stimulate them and see what's happening. <laughs> I'm like, you do not want me to go in there because I don't put this all over social media. <laughs> and uh, it, it's a very scary thing. And so the science has shown, for example, that if you take a group of overweight guys and one day you give them a milkshake that's a regular milkshake and the next day you give them a trick milkshake, which is exactly the same except... Um, for the way in which the sugar is absorbed. So there's starch and there's the same carbohydrate, the same protein, the same fat, the same fiber, the same calories. So exactly the same and they taste the same. So they don't know what they're drinking. When they found that when they had the one that had the sugar that was absorbed quickly compared to the one that's absorbed slowly, it created this pattern in their brain that lit up the same area called the nucleus accumbens as heroin or cocaine. And you can see it on a functional MRI. So this is not just a theory that, oh, it's maybe addictive. It's not really a true addiction. It actually is. And when they looked at their other biomarkers or blood levels of insulin, sugar, adrenaline, cortisol, stress hormones, you literally eat sugar, your stress hormones go up. So you can be meditating all day, but if you're eating sugar all day, you know, you're in trouble. And I think we don't understand how powerful these foods are and how they hijack our biology. But within a very short time, literally just 10 days or less, you literally can reset your biology, reset your brain chemistry, reset your hormones and your taste buds and get out of it. I, I remember I, I ran this uh, course once in a Kripala, which is a yoga center near me. Yeah, yeah. I know it. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and it, was, it, was, it was sort of a sugar detox. And this woman came in, she's like, there's no way I can do this. I've been addicted to sugar my whole time, my whole life. I'm never going to be able to get off this. I said, just do exactly what I'm saying and just try to do this and eat in a way that's going to reset your biology because food is medicine. And she's like, okay, I'll try it. With day two, she's like, I can't believe it. I don't have any more cravings. I don't want it. I don't need it. I, it's like my whole biology has changed. So I think people can be very empowered by, by making those kinds of changes. And, and does it, just, just to dive into that slightly, tiny bit more, does, should that change for people be extreme or is it incremental? So it's like, let's say someone's listening, they, got a, they, they are consuming too much sugar or they're having too many sodas or whatever. Is it like they should go the next day to no sodas? What's that? almost that 10 day program. What, what you yeah. So do you have like one ounce less of soda a day or yeah. <laughs> 12 sodas is 11. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I think as a doctor, um, you know, I want people to be able to have the experience of health. 
You know, yeah. it's like an awakening. I want them to actually quickly be able to experience that. So I usually get convince people to do a dramatic change for a short time, you know, like a week or 10 days. And then their bodies tell them how they feel. They go, oh my God, my migraines are gone. My digestion's better. I'm sleeping better. My sinus drip is gone. You know, my skin's clearing up. My acne's gone. I feel better. I don't have cravings. My energy's good. And they go, well, wow, I'm getting the connection between what I eat and how I feel. Yeah. And so I always love to give people that experience. And I, I, I created a program called the 10-Day Reset. Uh, and it's essentially giving them that opportunity. And you can download it free at getpharmacy.com. It's just a simple way of eating in a specific time frame, in a specific way, that's going to really regulate your, your biology. Because every bite of food you take regulates your entire biology. It changes your gene expression. It changes your hormones, your brain chemistry, your immune system, your microbiome, everything, literally with every bite. And, and when you understand that, you can upgrade or downgrade your biology literally with every bite. Your biological software can change. Uh, you can really see rapid changes. Uh, and we've seen incredible things from people you know, getting off insulin in three days, for example. So it's, it's really powerful when people make the choice to try this. And I think, you know, Tiny steps and tiny habit changes are good. And BJ Fogg talks about this for some things. But I think if you really want to see the power of this, you know, a short-term dramatic change can give you enormous benefit. I'm completely with you on that. I, I, I think that when you experience something immersively in an extreme way, you're more likely to quickly feel the benefits of it and to recognize it's powerful. Now, that may mean you may go back to your old habit quicker but you now know what you're trying to move towards as opposed yeah. to not having a tangible experience. So I, I'm perfectly with you. I wanted to check that with, with an expert. <laughs> that, that definitely, I, I can totally relate, uh, relate to that. Tell me about, you talk a lot about in the book and, and what I'm really trying to do for anyone who's listening or watching right now is the book is just for, and you can already tell Dr. Mark Hyman is a phenomenal storyteller. He's got a ton of great studies that, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm massively into studies. And so anytime I look <laughs> studies, I'm like, I, I, I get really fascinated and intrigued. The book is full of the, the insights, the, the tools and the actions that you can take in each of these areas. But I do believe that the first step is education and awareness. So I'm hoping that as you're listening to this, the podcast is going to give you the insight about each of these areas of our life that food impacts. But when you read the book, that's going to give you the full set of, you know, what part of it you need to change and where the action is. So what I'm fascinated by in the book is you talk a lot about how there's food racism. Yeah. And, and I think that this is so obviously uh, relevant right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and so important for people to understand because I think either we don't believe it exists or we're so consumed by it that we, we're not mm. conscious of it. Explain that concept to us. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, we, we have certain populations in this country that are so disproportionately affected by chronic disease uh, and by poor health. Uh, the African-American community, Hispanic community, Native American communities. And when you look at COVID-19, it is far and away hurting these populations more than anybody else. You know, for example, in Louisiana and Chicago, African-Americans are 30% of the population, but 70% of the deaths. You know, Native Americans are experiencing the same thing. And, and they, if you're African-American in America, you have twice the rate of getting diabetes. You have probably four times the rate of getting kidney failure and three and a half times uh, likely uh, to get amputations because of diabetes. Uh, you're, uh, and you're targeted more than the, the rest of the population. The food marketing is often more directed to minorities. Uh, and and we, we see this. This is from Yale's studies that have shown that we actually are targeting these populations more. So there, these health disparities are huge. And there are a lot of reasons for it. I mean, there's what we call it structural violence. You know, when we talk about structural racism, but there's a bigger concept, which is what are the structural violence, the social, economic, political conditions, environmental conditions that are driving disease? Right? We, we see this with whether infectious disease or chronic disease. And, and this is what we have in America. We have this, this structural violence that has led to incredible amounts of, of uh, disease in these populations. It's, it's leading to these health disparities. And, and we, we have to understand why. And the, the reasons are complex, right? There's, there's the racism issues and the, the segregation we had and the lack of access to education and housing and opportunity and funding. And there's a lot of issues. But the problem with food is that is it, it drives these populations to be more sick, 
less able to learn in school, less able to succeed in life, and more likely to get disability and chronic disease as they get older. So we see this sort of dis dis dismantling of these populations in scale in ways that we don't see in other populations. And it's, it's, uh, it's really heartbreaking because it's, it's so fixable. And I've seen this happen. You know, I, I went down, and it's, even if you're poor and you're white, a lot of these things are, are still evident. And as part of that movie, Fed Up, I went down to this little town in Easley, South Carolina. Uh, there was a family of five living in a trailer, food stamps and disability. The father was 42, already on dialysis from kidney failure from diabetes. The mother was like overweight, two plus hundred pounds. The son was practically diabetic at 16. And I said, listen, I'm not going to lecture you. Let's just cook a meal together. Here's what's in your kitchen. Like here's all the junk. And I showed him everything that they were eating they thought was fine. Like Cool Whip, which said zero trans fat, but it was all trans fat because the FDA left a loophole that said, if you have less than half a gram per serving, you can say no trans fat, but it's all air. So it's just like, it's just all the food industry influence. And they were like horrified. And then I said, let's cook a meal of turkey chili. Let's create a nice salad with olive oil and vinegar dressing and salt and pepper. Let's stir fry some asparagus. Let's roast some sweet potatoes. Simple, simple meal. It wasn't expensive. Uh, and they, they actually loved it. They never cooked in their kitchen before. <laughs> and I, I just give a little bit of education. I said, here's a guide. On, on how to eat well for less, good food on a tight budget from the Environmental Working Group, and uh, or I'm on the board. And I, and I gave them a cookbook. I said, you can do this. And they did it. And within a year, they lost 200 pounds together. The father was able to lose enough to get a, a new kidney. The son lost 50, but then went to work at Bojangles, which is a fast food restaurant down in the South. And it's the only place to get a job for these kids there. And he gained 50 pounds. It was like, it's putting an alcoholic to work in a bar. <laughs> yeah. and, and then he figured it out and he lost 138 pounds and he got into medical school. He asked me to write a letter of recommendation. So people can, can actually come out of this if they're given the right education tools. But I've worked in these communities and populations and they just don't know. They just are unaware of, of this sort of level of food racism and food, uh, and food um, even apartheid that's happening in these communities where you see the lack of ability to access food and lack of ability to find you know, quality ingredients because they're buying food at the gas station. That's where they get their food. Yeah, thank you so much for raising awareness about this super important issue because I feel like it's it's just not talked about. No. And, and, and it, not, yeah, go on. No, sorry, go on. It's internalized, you know, like I, I, I went on a rafting trip and I read the story in the book uh, with a Hopi chief who's a Native American chief and they, he lives in one of the oldest uh, inhabited cities in America, Robbie, which has been, somebody's lived in there for over a thousand years. And he was very, very overweight, uh, and he was just struggling to get down to the raft and threw up because it just was so out of shape. And I, we got on the raft, and we kind of got to know each other. I said, you know, you can actually fix this. You can get rid of your diabetes. He said, well, what do I have to do? He said, well, um, I, I said, well, you have to get rid of the starch and sugar in your diet, the sodas and the sweets and all that. He's like, wow, well, okay, but what are we going to do for our traditional Hopi ceremonial foods? We have these traditional Hopi ceremonial foods. And I'm like, what foods? It's like cookies, cakes, pies. And I'm like thinking to myself, those are not your traditional ceremonial foods. And what's happened was that the government put everybody on renovations. They cut off their food supply and their traditional ways of hunting or fishing or even growing food. They diverted, in Hopi, they diverted their water so they had no access to rivers anymore. And then they piled in these commodity foods, flour, sugar, and shortening, right? And that became... Uh, their diet and they, these government commodities were the staples. So they made Indian fry bread and Indian tacos. There's nothing Indian about that. And, and, and these foods <laughs> are so, so toxic. And now that's why we see 80% of them have diabetes by the time they're 30. And life expectancy in some of these communities is, is, is 46. And it's terrible. And, and it's not just the Native American communities, but he's internalized this, this food concepts that he thinks are his traditional foods. And this is in, true in the African-American communities and Latino communities. Uh, and, you know, like in Chicago, um, there's something called the Chicago Loop. If you live outside the Loop, your life expectancy is 16 years less. If you take a subway from Midtown Manhattan to the Bronx, which is a very poor uh, African-American communities, your life expectancy goes down six months for every subway stop. <laughs> wow. You know, to Harlem and then to the Bronx. So these things are are really not talked about much. And uh, you know, I gave a lecture uh, a few years ago, it was on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination at the Harlem Riverside Church. And it was really about food oppression. And, you know, it was a little intimidating for me because it was mostly African-American community. I'm a white Jewish guy you know, from New York. And what do I know about it? 
but uh, it was, it was, you know, Governor Cuomo spoke there, I spoke, and and I, I just was able to share what I was seeing from the science and from the data about how these communities were being affected. And it was it was an incredible response, and people really resonated with it. It's a very short 10-minute talk. You can find it online. Just do Hyman food oppression, you'll find it. But it's it, it sort of is really catapulted me into really trying to raise these issues because we can't we can't resurrect our communities unless we have resurrect our health. And and we can't resurrect our health unless we resurrect our food. And we can't resurrect our food until we fix the food system and fix the agriculture and sort of pull that thread that connects everything together. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I'm trying to do in our interview today is 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 really understand the the role of the individual and educate the individual because I feel like if the individual is educated, then we'll start to see this real change. Tell me about we've talked we've definitely tapped into this, but we talked a lot about how it impacts our physical health. But I know in the book, you also talk about how nutrition and food can actually be medicine for our mental health. Yeah. And, and I think that this is this link again. I, I feel like what you're doing in the book is just topics that I, at least, at least I can be honest and say, I'm not hearing about in a non-conspiracy theory. <laughs> if I hear about some of this stuff, it's always yeah. someone who loves conspiracy theories. I don't love conspiracy theories. No. I, I, like, uh, I like data and, and yeah. fact and discussion and change yeah. and information. And so that's what I think you do so well in this book. But let's talk to me about the connection between mental health and, and our diets. And yeah, you know, uh, Jay, it was, it was a surprise to me. I, I uh, was practicing functional medicine, working with patients. They'd come up with these physical complaints. They'd have an autoimmune disease or they would have some digestive issues or whatever was going on, uh, or they'd have ADD, whatever. And I, and I would, I would, treat them and restore their health by dealing with restoring these basic biological systems, your gut, your immune system, your detoxification system, your hormones, all the things that we, we do in functional medicine. And, and a lot of it's using food as medicine. And then they would report back, Dr. Hyman, I don't know what happened, but my depression's gone. My panic attacks are gone. My ADD is better. My memory's better. My brain fog's gone. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> and I began to really investigate what was happening. And I, I sort of jokingly call myself the accidental psychiatrist because I was treating people's body and their brain was getting better. And I began to realize that, you know, let's just take depression, for example. You know, depression turns out is an inflammatory disease, which we don't think of. It's like, you know, it's like a sore throat, but it's in your brain. And your brain, you know, doesn't hurt but it can be depressed or feel sad or be anxious or have OCD or ADD or whatever. And, and so it has different ways of expressing that inflammation, whether it's Alzheimer's even is an inflammatory disease, autism is inflammatory. And, and the question is, well, what's driving the inflammation? And it's our primarily our inflammatory process, nutrient poor diet. It's this industrial diet. It's lacking the nutrients that our bodies and our brains need to function. And uh, I just saw case after case after I started people on a whole foods diet, took out the processed food, got rid of inflammatory foods like gluten, dairy, got rid of the sugar, gave them, gave them a moment to sort of heal and then put in the nutrients that their bodies needed. Miracles were happening. And I, and I began to sort of go, wow, you know, the body is so connected to the brain. And so, yes, there's a mind-body effect, but there's also a body-mind effect. And that body-mind effect is worth fixing because you can do something about it. You know, if you want to deal with your mental health issues, if you want to become enlightened, it's a lot easier to do it if you deal with the problems first. You know, if, you're, if your gut is healthy, if you are not low thyroid functioning, if your nutrition levels or vitamin D is good or your B12 level is good, it's much easier to actually get to what you want to do in terms of your spiritual goals or your personal goals if you are feeling good, Right. It's a lot harder to get enlightened if you're mercury poisoned or you have you know, some nasty thing going on in your body. And so, so this really was the, the genesis of this book, The Ultra Mind Solution, about how we fix our minds and our bodies by fixing our body first. It's not that we don't have to work on our minds as well, because that's, that's, that's your lane. <laughs> but uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it, was, it was such an insight for me to go, wow, there's so many people suffering from mental health issues that are driven by physical issues. No, it's... it's one thousand percent it's all interconnected and even i find like sometimes people need their minds help to change their body and they need their bodies help to change their mind it's it's you know it's and, and i think the the fixation over either or or where do i start it's almost like we need to be absorbed in all of it like i found that and i i can identify with what you're saying 
that I was someone who focused a lot on my mind and was able to find a lot of peace and calm in my mind, but then I found that I'd neglected my body. Mm. And it was almost like real alignment in your life is felt when your body and mind are aligned, right? Yeah. There's, there's, you can't have a advanced mind and a neglected body. That's not alignment. That's going to constantly cause friction in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same with what you're saying, where if people are feeling mind fog or uh, struggling with a mental health illness and they're not taking care of their body, and like you said, their brain, yeah. uh, then, then again, you can't switch that. So I, I totally see the interconnectedness and... I hope more and more people listening will realize that when you read the book, Food Fix, that you'll be able to start making those tweaks that you need to in your lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, um, even education, you know, we talk about in the book and how our kids are so impaired. I mean, you know, one in 10 kids has ADD. Uh, kids have learning difficulties, dyslexia, challenges with, you know, academic performance. And the CDC put out a report that I talk about in the book on the influence of nutrition on academic performance. And it's massive. You know, how do kids learn when they're eating junk food and going to school in the morning with flaming hot chips and a Coke? They, they can't function and then they crash. Uh, and so providing good nutrition can have radical effects on kids' academic performance and close what we call an achievement gap. And I think it also affects behavior. And, you know, we think about mood, but one of the things I was shocked to discover is that is it violence and violent behavior and aggression are also connected to our diet. And in prison studies that I talk about in the book, prisoners who are fed a, who are violent, who are fed a whole foods healthy diet in prison, can you reduce violent crime by 56%? And if you add a multivitamin, it goes down by 80%. If you do it in kids in juvenile detention centers, these kids, 91% reduction in bad behavior and violence, 100% reduction in suicides. I mean, it's, it's just staggering. And if, if there was a pill that could do that, Everybody would be taking it. There'd be a giant pharmaceutical company marketing, and we don't hear about these issues because they're they're not something that's going to create billions of dollars in profit. But unfortunately, it's it's where the it's where the where the where the, where the real effect can be. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Everyone, I want to recommend that you uh, not only go listen to the Doctor's Pharmacy podcast, but you also check out the book Food Fix that I have next to me right now. Again, huge recommend recommendation for the book. A to get educated, become aware of what's really happening, what's working in the background, that's gonna give you enough confidence and enough of a reason and a why to go and actually make the changes in your life. It's really easy to live in ignorance and in the pain and just allow for it to continue and feel like it's only because something outside's impacting you, but actually take responsibility for our health and our futures is huge. And if not for yourself, then at least your children and the future generations. And and Dr. Mark Hyman, I, I believe you're doing such a, a great uh, service. Honestly, you really are in, in, in raising all of these issues in all areas and the depth of the research and the lengths you've gone through to, to share this with us. Uh, I'm super, super grateful. Thank so you. We, we end every interview with something called the final five, which are your uh, fast five round, which is answers in one word to one sentence maximum. Okay. All right. Uh, and uh, Dr. Hyman, these are your final five. So question number one, uh, what's the best change you've made in your diet? The best change I made was to dramatically cut out starch and sugar. I don't eliminate it, but I, I really don't eat any flour products. And if I eat sugar, it's usually part of some whole food, right? It can, maybe I'll have a you know whole huge chocolate, which I love, which is you know very low glycemic. Um, and I, I think that and getting rid of industrial food is has been the best things I've done. I love that. And of course, you know, adding in all the good stuff. Of course, super practical. Okay, great. Uh, second question. What do you know to be absolutely true about health that a lot of people would disagree with you on? Wow, that's a good question. No one's ever asked me that, Jay. <laughs> I think that the, the biggest thing that people don't understand is that uh, you know, the way we define disease is completely wrong. So our normal conception of disease is completely flawed because it's not based on causes, it's based on symptoms. Mm. So I think people just don't understand that. And so if you focus on causes, not symptoms, and treat that, the root cause, people get better. I love that, great answer. All right, third question. Uh, what gives you the biggest hope for the food industry? I see, I see hope because I see these food companies waking up. I see companies like General Mills and Danone and other companies and Nestle really understanding that this can't go on that their, their survival depends on 
transforming our food system. So I, I see the, the, and I see the culture shifting and people demanding more consciousness about their food. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Awesome. Question number four, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in the last 12 months? Wow. Well, I've been traveling for 25 years and uh, on the road and COVID has, has locked me down. And uh, I've realized that uh, having a rhythm and stability and quiet and time to think is actually a good thing. <laughs> and, I, and I think I've, I've really learned that it's, it's time in my life to, to shift how I'm doing things so I can actually cultivate more of that. That's brilliant. And your fifth and final question is, if you could create a law that everyone in the world would have to follow, what would it be? Ooh, a law that everyone would have to follow. Um, well, I think it would, be, it would be a law that would be that all governments would implement that, that would influence every single policy around food, which would be quality is king. So no food policy can be made unless it's putting the quality of nutrition and nutritional density first in every single thing we do, whether it's dietary guidelines or what food we grow or what food we market or whatever it is, it's going to transform everything if we can do that. I love that. That's beautiful. I'm actually going to ask you one more question that has just come to my mind. Uh, do you think that it's possible to create healthy food that's affordable? Absolutely. I mean, this, the studies are really clear that it may cost 50 cents more a day to eat healthier. And like I said, there are guys like Good Food on a Tight Budget uh, that are, are actually incredibly effective in helping people eat well for less. It's good for them, good for the planet, and good for their wallet. And I, I think we get caught up in, you know, sort of elitism about eating healthy, but it really, this family in, in uh, South Carolina, they lived on food stamps and disability for a family of five, and they were able to do it in one of the worst food deserts in America. So it's really more about education and awareness than it is about money. That's great to hear. Awesome. Dr. Mark Hyman, thank you so much uh, for being a guest on On Purpose. What I'd love for everyone to do is tag me and Dr. Mark Hyman on Instagram with your favorite insights, your favorite uh, thought or idea or concept or fact that Mark Hyman stated today that stayed with you and how you're going to experiment with your diet. I'd love for you all to think about what is that deep dive experiment you can do for the next seven days what could you remove from your diet or add to your diet uh based on the insights in the book based on the guidance in the book that you think is going to make a massive change try and experiment for just seven days for one week and see how your life changes and as i said go out and grab a copy of the book we'll put the links in the podcast description so you can go straight to amazon and grab your copy uh, dr mark hyman is there anything that i haven't asked you that you'd love to share not, nothing other than I think, you know, we're in this moment where everybody uh, it, it can focus in on their own health. And by doing that, they will literally help us get through this COVID epidemic and help solve so many of our global problems. Because what we do to ourselves, we do to our communities and our families. And what we do to ourselves, we do to the planet. And so understanding that is a circle and that we can actually impact that by making those small changes in ourselves, uh, I think is very a very powerful message for people to understand. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll see you again next week. This podcast was produced by Dust Light Productions. Our executive producer from Dust Light is Misha Youssef. Our senior producer is Juliana Bradley. Our associate producer is Jacqueline Castillo. Valentino Rivera is our engineer. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. And special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dustlight Development and Operations Coordinator. <laughs>